All right. Hello and welcome, everyone, to the Monday Morning General Podcast, where we give you the play-by-play and analysis on battles from antiquity to the 20th century. On today's show, we are talking the Battle of Marathon, Part 2. I'm Brendan, and that's Bjorn. Let's jump in. So last week, we talked about the events that led up to and caused the Battle of Marathon. Today, we're going to bring you to the battlefield and talk about how we think things actually played out. And we have to do that, Bjorn, because uh, there was nothing really written about this thing besides what Herodotus wrote. So, you know, these are, I think, you know, a historian's best ideas of what happened based on the text from Herodotus, other historians, and like what the battlefield actually looks like. Uh, so this is not exactly, you know, like like we always see from like a World War II battle, you know, knowing all this, the small details, like we'd have all the reports from the lieutenants and the captains and the generals. Uh, this one, we don't got any of that. <laughs> right. Well, and that's a, that's a huge aspect when you're trying to evaluate history, uh, especially the further back you go, the less sources you mm-hmm. have to, to kind of go off of. Uh, you know, like you said today, everyone and their grandma, you know, is writing about a story that happened or, you know, especially like take the civil war, for example, you've got the vast majority of Americans could read and write. So they're writing home and we have all Mm -hmm. these, these primary sources back in the day, you know, when we're talking about this battle of marathon here, no one could write, no one had any idea what they were doing. And so it, it's a, it's a best guess. It's a historian's best guess based yep. off of some of the sources that were written, but then also some of the archaeology that had been taking place uh, at the battle itself. That's basically what we're running off of. Right. And I, like another point to that, the the earliest account we have of this battle is from Herodotus, a Greek historian. And I'm pretty sure based on the timeline, he wrote this like 20, 30 years after the battle actually happened. And so that'd be like us today going back and trying to write something about Desert Storm without necessarily, like, and, and talking to veterans of the of the war, but not necessarily having any of the documentation or actually being at the battlefield. Right. Well, and another thing that's important to understand uh, is that there were people who were writing things down back in the day. And and some of these sources that we, we just haven't, we don't know where they are. We've lost them. Right. And so Herodotus is the one of the sources that actually survived mm-hmm. to today's age. There would have been other authors uh, potentially writing about or small little stories, this, that, and the other. There would have been letters that were written about this, but but those things just haven't survived. We can't find them. And when when those kind of things come up when we find something like that and we actually validate that it's legitimate that's a huge advance in history and everyone gets excited about it but let's let's get back here to the battle yeah Uh, let's do a real quick recap for everyone basically if you remember from last week uh, what caused this battle was was a conflict between you know the persians and the the greek individuals who were colonizing what mm-hmm. what was that Turkish area of today, Ionia. Asia Minor? Yeah, yeah, Ionia, and and so you had a couple people switching sides back and forth, and then that basically leads to this Persian invasion yeah. of of Athens. And it was really uh, uh, it was really Darius like uh, a, a revenge story, right? Like uh, oh, yeah. the Athenians. So it's like revenge and empire expansion, uh, and then you know little underdog Greece uh, trying to hold back. Uh, the big empire and maintain their uh, their freedom. Yeah, it might be a big word, but their independence. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go for sure. Okay, so so, let's so last go. time we had Persians had landed at Marathon. So we have the Persian host landing at Marathon, which is really close to Athens. It's like seventeen miles uh, by the way the crow flies. So the first thing that I want to talk about is at the strategy level, why did Persia land at Marathon and not go around the peninsula and land at Athens? Right. Because don't they send their navy around towards Athens anyways? They do. They do later. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so the question that, yeah, that's a question. That's a good question that I have as well is why would you, why would you choose to land at marathon? And so I think we've got a couple different, couple different ideas. You know, one of them, you're just talking about these navies, they only had so much supplies, right. only had so much water on them. And so right. one of those easy ideas that you could come up with is, hey, they stopped at Marathon because every night these navies would pull their boats up, get off, and they would camp. There was mm-hmm. very, very rarely in antiquity did anyone spend the night in a boat mm-hmm. on the water. So and that's th- one of that's one I, of the ideas. I think that's a big consideration too, because you know, we're talking at least a dozen and some sources have up to hundreds of these Persian triremes that need to land and un- disembark all the soldiers, all of the uh, camp followers, the horses, you know, the supplies like that takes a lot of space. Uh, you need a really nice place to put boats up on the or ships, like up, uh, you know, up on land to, uh, to disembark. And so, and I think we have to remember uh, Greece is a pretty mountainous area and the coast mm-hmm. is really rough. So there's not a lot of great places to actually land ships for, you know, especially for a large army to disembark and, and get off. So the terrain of Marathon is definitely a lot more suitable for that compared to Athens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, I mean, you've got the idea. So terrain plays a huge potential in my mind as to why they would want to go there. But then also, uh, if you had the opportunity to defend in your home or on a land of someone else's choosing, you know, that that's another thing entirely. Mm-hmm. If, if I'm the Persians, I may want to land at Marathon knowing that the Greeks have to come to me. Right. They have to march themselves 17 miles. They need to set up a camp. They right. need to engage me. And at the on the meantime, you know, heck, I can uh, maybe send my cavalry around. Maybe I can right. send my ships around like they right. ended up doing. Right. Uh, so, yeah, and so that's like an idea. The uh, the plain of Marathon is a great place for an army with cavalry and with a lot of foot to conduct operations compared to like trying to, you know, get into the harbor area of Athens and, you know, get soldiers off. So, yeah, well, to, to me, it's com- a lot. It's a lot of that, that terrain aspect. And then, like you said, Bjorn, like, getting the Athenian hoplites to move and get away from the city opens up the op- opportunity to do like a double attack, right, where you attack at Marathon and then you send a host around uh, to actually land and take the city. And then the Persians are fighting a defensive fight within Athens against hoplites, which is a better place strategically for them to be. Oh, heck yeah. You know, one of the biggest ideas when you're talking about antiquity and the way that they fought, you fought in your lines, you fought in your phalanxes and the opposing force that could wrap around yours and outflank yours is going to be the one that's potentially going to win the battle just because they can push you around. Now, if you're in your own home, if you're in the streets of Athens and you've got your phalanx there, there's no outflanking a phalanx when it's, (laughs) there's a building on one side and another building on the other. You want to put them in a wide open space where you can wrap around and use your numbers to the advantage instead of just trying to hammer through. Because let's be real, the the Athenians, their forces were better man to man than mm-hmm. the Persians. Yeah. We'll talk about the uh, the equipment disparity that there was between two armies, but we'll get to that right before we cover the, the actual fights. Persian lands, and then the Greeks need to respond, right? So the Athenians need to respond. So Athens musters all of their available hoplites, basically leaving Athens totally unguarded. Even with mustering every single hoplite in the you know, the region of Athens, the Greek army was at a like two to one disadvantage person wise. So uh, the Persians brought a lot of dudes uh, to come in and take Athens and the rest of Greece. Yep. There's a big, uh, there's a big disadvantage numbers wise. And then Bjorn, like you said, so the Athenian army marched out to Marathon and 
it's tough to tell from the maps, but there's a mountain that's to the west of the Plains of Marathon. And that's, I think, where most historians think that the Athenians set up camp and it had a nice overview over the Plains of Marathon so they could see what uh, the Persian army was doing. So they get to that camp. And another nice thing about that campsite is it blocked the exits off of the Plain of Marathon that led to Athens. So it gave them a potential uh, place to not let any sort of land movement to Athens happen. So they picked a good spot there. And then while they marched the 17 miles from Athens to Marathon, the Athenians sent a runner named Pheidippides to Sparta. And so he he ran, let's see what he ran a long ways. I don't know how long the actual distance was, but it's a long ways. And he arrived in Sparta during the festival of Carnea. And the Spartans basically told him that, yep, we're going to come help you in 10 days after the, <laughs> after the festival's over, because you got a party, right? So Spartans will not be involved in this fight. So it's really Athens. And then another uh, city state called Plataea that also uh, puts an army here. You can Persia. only imagine how desperate this dude was when he say, oh. Hey, we got a battle and we need you. And they're yeah. like, yeah, yeah. After our party. Yeah. After the party. 10 days. So, so yeah, but there was some religious aspect to it as well. Yeah, they would have thought there that was. they were, you know, they were going to be damned or they were going to be smoted right. or smited was, or something. I don't really know what the festival of Carnea was, but it's probably something similar to like the Christian Easter or like, you know, Ramadan for, for Islam, right? It's probably a very big religious festival, like you said. So it's like, it's hard to get away from that uh, to fight the Persian. But that was part of the Athenian strategy. So they knew the Persians were going to take some, or the Spartans were going to take some time to get to Marathon. So the Athenians really tried to delay any sort of activity. So they get to set up camp and then the Athenians and the Persians stared at each other for five days. So that, yeah. that's par for the course. When you're talking about ancient battles, mm-hmm. you get these armies that would set up next to each other. And let's be real uh, in today's, in today's actions where you don't really see your enemy or you're just shooting at a shape way off in the distance. That's something that a human being can can do a lot easier than mm-hmm. you are going to stand here. Then you're going to draw your weapon. Mm-hmm. You're going to charge into the enemy. And at two to three feet away, you are going to attempt to slaughter them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes a lot of courage. It takes something that is incredibly special in a human being to be able to do something like that. And so what they would do is every day they'd wake up, they would form their ranks, and then they would start insulting each other, you know, telling they, you'd have the big guys who think there's something special. Right. They'd walk out into the center of the, of the battlefield and they'd say, Oh, you can't take me down. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while they'd have those couple, couple dudes who thought they were hot stuff and want to die. And then everyone would be happy about it. Kind of like, uh, in the, in the Bible, David and Goliath, you know, right. Goliath was yep. their hero who yep. marched out. And, and so that, that's, that's ancient battles 101 right there. Yeah. And so delay is a huge part of it. And, mm-hmm. and these guys went five entire days looking at each other, insulting each other yeah. uh, before they kind of got their dander up and, and went for it. They're staring at each other for, for five days. And then let's talk quickly about the, the train for the, the battlefield. So, you know, as we move into future battles, I think we'll talk, have a lot more to say about what the actual train looks like. The Plain of Marathon is really just a big flat square. You know, it's situated with the uh, Bay of Marathon, I think it's called, big open piece of water. And then you have a large plain. Uh, so it's four and a half kilometers wide from the from the ocean or the sea to uh, the next like mountainside. So four and a half kilometers wide and then about eight kilometers long. And then, yeah, it was surrounded by restricted mountainous terrain to the north and to the west. And to the west is where the Athenians had set up camp. Then on the east side, there is what's called the Great Marsh. And that's where the Persians had put their triremes, where they're basically getting fresh water every single day. The Great Marsh is just a very large marsh with a lot of water. And then there was one road running north and south directly in front of the Greek position. Uh, that road went to Athens and it was right in front of the Greek position so that they could you know, protect that, that uh, line of communication. We'll talk about this battle in phases. 
loosely phases. So there's three phases that we're going to talk about. So phase one, we've kind of alluded to it, but the armies begin to form their line. Every single day for those five days that they're staring at each other, they would form their lines and size one another up. And so this actually gave Miltiades, uh, the one of the Greek generals, the opportunity to see just how long the Persian line was. And the Persian line was extremely long. If you think about like, you know, two to one advantage that, you know, they almost covered that whole four and a half kilometer wide area. Ooh, one other thing I'll say about the about the battlefield. We don't actually know where the battle took place on the field. Uh, there are some places that have it really far west and kind of facing north and south. Uh, some have it further east and, you know, the armies fighting each other east to west. We don't really know. And there's not a lot of archaeological evidence that suggests where the battle was fought. It happened somewhere within this plane. You know, I, in my mind, it happens probably more east to west just because of how the, the terrain plays out. You know, it, it anchors the Persians on the west or on the south with the water and then on the north with that mountainous terrain. They cover a huge swath of that area with the amount of soldiers that they have. Well, and we that adds a lot how many of soldiers the Persians have, right? Right. That adds that adds a lot of credibility to the argument because when you're a general and you're playing these and these old school battles, your job is to ensure you're not outflanked. And so right. you're going to want to anchor yourselves uh, and your soldiers down, right. uh, you know, cavalry aside, you don't want your enemy's phalanx to be able to stretch around you. You don't mm-hmm. want your enemy cavalry to be able to harass your, your flanks. It makes a lot of sense. Miltiades sets up the Greek line. And typically what they would do is they would have a 10 person deep phalanx, right? From the front line to the back line, 10, 10 ranks. And then they would stretch it out as wide as they could. The problem that the Greeks were running into, if they were to create you know, a 10 rank deep phalanx across the whole front, they would be very quickly enveloped on both sides. Like the Persian line is way longer than that. What the Athenians do is they create two strong wings and then a very thin center. So on the wings, they had 10 rank deep phalanxes. And then the center, they only go down to four. And that going down to four allows them to stretch that center out really far. So basically we're looking at one complete line on the Greek and Persian side where they're not, there's no advantage there. But there's a big mismatch in the center, right? Where the Persians are super deep and the Greeks are not deep at all. Is there anything else you want to say on, on that? Yeah, no. So basically the idea... You have to thin your lines. When you're outnumbered as much as the the Athenians are, you must expand your line. You cannot allow the Persians to, to wrap around you because essentially what's going to happen in this battle is the the center is going to cave a little bit because it's weaker and the, the, the flanks are going to stretch around. It's going to give this idea that, you know, oh, Miltiades was this this amazing genius of a general. Well, he was just adapting to what he needed to do, which was spread his lines. The way it turns out is really great in his favor, mm-hmm. but but more than anything, it was, we cannot lo- allow them to outflank us. Right. And in doing so, he then was able to position himself where they were actually able to envelop the Persians. But that's that's down the line here. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, they do that for five days and they like, yeah, the Greeks and the Persians are eyeing each other up and figuring out like how best to place themselves. And then what's interesting is Herodotus states that the Greeks actually attacked the Persians, which is pretty interesting because the Greeks were waiting for the Spartans, right? So I think like strategically, it makes more sense for the Greeks to delay as long as possible to bring the Spartans into the fray. And that's not what happened. And in my mind, you know, with Herodotus saying that, I think, you know, it sounds more honorable and more aggressive to have the Athenians, you know, attack first into the Persians when in reality, that doesn't really make the most sense. I think there's a couple of things that we have a couple of theories here. So theory one, the Persian army began embarking a part of their army 
uh, back onto the fleet and with the intention of going to Athens. And I'm sure the Greeks kind of understood that, right? Time was quickly running out for the Greeks to make a move. You know, seeing a, you know, a chunk of the Persian army getting onto the ships and most likely going to Athens probably made them want to do some sort of movement against the Persians. So there's that. Theory two is that the Greeks counterattacked a Persian attack, right? So it looks like the, the Greeks attack, you know, with the Persians moving west. And then theory three is like a mix of the two, right? So maybe the Persians were harassing with arrow volleys and then the Greeks just kind of had enough and they attacked, you know. Yeah, that, I mean, that theory, the theory three, when when the Greeks had just had enough, like that was how the majority of these battles began mm-hmm. back in the day. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to, I can only take so many of your insults. I can only do it so long before I get angry and I'm going to go after you. Also, I really like what you said at the very beginning about how it's it's important to understand that Herodotus is writing this from his own perspective, from the Greek perspective, mm-hmm. and the honor in being the attacker. You're defending your homeland. You're going to attack your enemy. You're going to kick them out. It it sounds better when you're writing about it. And so I could easily see that as as being the the true way that this occurred was, you know, the Persians seeing that they outnumbered them so sufficiently, they were the ones who got their dander up. But Herodotus wanted to say it in a different way. Or maybe the veterans of these battles who he was talking to uh, remember it, in quotes, in a different way uh, because they wanted to have the honor of- Remember how brave we were that day. Yeah, we were the ones. Because let's be real, how brave would you have to be to charge into an army of Persians twice your size? Yeah, pretty brave. Yeah, But you know, if you see, yeah- if you see like a threat to Athens, like, hey, we need to go and, you know, fight this Persian army and then hightail it back to Athens to defend the city. Yeah, we got to start the attack now. We can't wait for the Spartans. So I think that's what happened. You know, five days in, uh, they formed the lines up and then uh, the the battle happened. The best guess we have for the date of the battle uh, goes to a German historian named Philippe August Beck. Uh, and he puts the date of the battle as August 12th, 490 B.C. How the battle started, lines formed. And they typically form, you know, probably like, what, 500 meters to a kilometer away from each other, right? So there's a big open no man's land kind of thing between these two armies. And so the Greeks are in full hoplite armor, Persians are across, and the Persians are just launching volleys of arrows and, you know, trying to attrit the Spartans or the Athenians as they move to the line. And the Greeks actually, you know, when you see like city-state versus city-state, so Athens versus Sparta or Athens versus Eritrea or any of those, arrows and bows were not a big part of the kit for for Greece back then. And so it was really, really heavily on spears and swords. And the only way that the Greeks thought to, to get through that first initial volley of arrows was to run, right? So uh, the battle was characterized by a Greek veteran um, forever afterwards saying simply that we ran. And that's what the veterans would talk about uh, with this battle, how they described it to Herodotus was that they ran for the battle. Arrows coming down and they're just running. That doesn't sound like the greatest idea in my mind. You're wearing 35 to 50 mm-hmm. pounds worth of equipment and you're running a, a, a kilometer to get to your enemy. You're going to yeah. be incredibly winded by yeah. the end of that yeah. of that run. Um, but it's, you're weighing your options. Right. You walk and let the arrows rain down, which to be fair... Hoplites had much better armor coverage than other than other soldiers at the time, mm-hmm. but you're still gonna you're still gonna take damage from from those volleys. So yeah. we and, ran. And the, the other things about the running too is that, you know the Persians probably weren't expecting it, and so when we talk about like you know offensive operations, you know especially as we get closer closer to modern warfare, you know on the offense, really important things are audacity, speed, massing your your combat power. 
you know, having them see you walking and then all of a sudden, you know, Greeks start sprinting towards your position. That's kind of scary, you know, with these dudes and their full, their full kit. Um, so yeah, they're, they run. And then the toughest thing to me here is getting back into the phalanx formation and locking in with the shields. So I don't like, we, like we said, we don't know what that run looks like if they, you know, if they ran and then they stop right away and then phalanx form and then put spears down or if they ran i don't think they ran straight into the persian line i think they must have stopped short and reformed up and then attacked but yeah so yeah, they, yeah. they they would have had to have done that in order to p- put themselves back in their phalanx position which is in in fact their greatest advantage in this battle if they were to have spread themselves out in their run you know someone's faster someone's slower oh that's a big guy back mm-hmm. there he's he's huffing and puffing you're gonna your your lines are in they're gonna break and if you allow the Persians to infiltrate your lines, their numbers, they're they're, they're going to overwhelm you. And so yep. they would have had to stop, you know, probably 50 yards yep. short and reformed and then, and then, then push forward. Yep. Yeah, that run would have sucked so hard. When we're talking about, you know, Athenian hoplites at the time, these guys had long spears, probably in the like the nine to 10 foot length range um, with a large spearhead on the top. And then they're like the, and then compared to the Persians, long spears versus Persians with short swords. So the reach advantage, you know, like when you talk about like, you know, boxing or MMA, taller dudes with long arms have an advantage over the short guys. You know, if they can keep people away and hit at a distance and then never get hit themselves, uh, that's huge. So if you can use your shields combined with those uh, long spears, that gives them a big advantage. Speaking of shields, the Persian or the Athenians had wooden shields with a bronze cover, and then uh, they had a grip near the edge, which gave them really good control. And, the, you know, the phalanx is all about protecting the guy to, what is it, to your right? I think to the right, it's, right? So it's like the your, guy to your, it'd be the guy to your left. Most your people left, are, okay. their shields are in their left hand, yep. so it would have been the guy to your left. And then leather armor. So they weren't using any like, like a large amount of like metal at the time for armor. So it was leather armor and it, that weighed 60 pounds, right? So you're talking about like a chest piece and like probably arm pieces and leg pieces and then a bronze helm and greaves. So this is heavy stuff, right? So 60 pounds, at least of armor with a short sword and a shield and a long spear. Like you're probably talking close to, you know, probably like 75 to hundred pounds of gear. That's a lot to run with. And then having to like fight hand to hand, it's a lot. Let's talk about these armies quick. So the Athenians, uh, I think, you know, the the guesstimate that we have here is probably nine to 10,000 Athenians and then 1,000 Plataeans that had joined the fight. So we're talking, you know, probably anywhere from 10 to 11,000 Greeks. The hoplites had a weakness, right? The flank. Hoplites are really great against lights and heavy infantry because they, you know, they're all their armor is forward, right? If you're like a man facing forward, it's like playing football, right? Like all of your padding is facing forward. That's where the Greek army is really strong. The Greek army is super weak on the flanks, right? Like they're all about like facing forward. So if you can get any sort of turning into the side of a Greek army, like you have a a big advantage. So everything the Greeks are doing is trying to prevent anybody from getting to their sides. So that, I mean, and that's the thing, the Athenians, the majority of their experience, these guys would have had some experience fighting little skirmishes back Mm -hmm. and forth between city states, but what they're fighting is phalanx versus phalanx. And so these guys, they're, they're intrinsically aware of the, of the the problem and the vulnerability with their phalanx, but when you're up against the the Persian army, if they don't outflank you, you have a, an immense advantage with your reach, with the locking shields, the protection yep. that you're providing. So, I mean, that's going to play really heavily in. But the problem is mass. You know, yep. the Persians have the mass. They have the mass. Yeah. So let's talk about that here. So all the ancient sources, you know, like we're going to talk about this when we talk about any battles from antiquity, Bjorn, or ancient battles, is you know, huge army sizes, right? Like 
the, the the sources, you know, Herodotus to all the other historians, a hundred to a half, hundred thousand to a half a million Persian army against ten thousand. A, a, a modern Brendan, a modern day army would have a hard time sustaining a five hundred thousand yes. man in the field. Yeah, especially how are you supposed to put five hundred thousand men in a four by four and a half by right. eight kilometer square? How are you supposed to it's get impossible. them from Persia to Greece? Uh, the logistics are impossible. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's that's important. Uh, you know, important to underline that this Herodotus is trying to make a really great story, and a great story shows eleven thousand uh, Greeks against a half a million Persians. Yeah. It's nonsense, uh, and that's <laughs> something that's important to be to understand. Is the best guess is what we have with history and evaluating these sources. They're going to exaggerate. I'm sure you've never caught a fish that was eight feet long. I've never you know, exaggerated. You hear, you hear these stories all the time in today's age. Humans are fallible. Humans want to make a good story. Yep. Herodotus wrote this story and it was a good story. So mo- what are the modern estimates? Say, let's, so, let's look at this for real. The modern estimates, you know, based on what they could supply with armor, transportation, and, you know, su- you know supply with food, water, and all that. About twenty five thousand infantry, and then still maybe two hundred. Still horse. a good size. Still, still a good large, size. Still large, and still like you know at least two to one, and you know a little over that. So yeah, twenty five thousand foot, and then two hundred horse. So the interesting thing about Persian horse. So Herodotus tells us that from the age of five to twenty, the Persians teach their sons just three things: to ride horses, to shoot the bow, and to speak the truth. So um, <laughs> well, that's that's very poetic. Herodotus. It is very poetic. Yeah. So, but I mean they know how to ride horse and they know how to shoot a bow. And the bow thing is interesting because the Greeks don't really deal with that right now. So the Persians have a nice, you know, if you're talking about range, now you're adding in arrows. Like these are not, you know, English long bows that we'll talk about, you know, at Agincourt and anything like that. But these are, you know, probably, you know, maybe out 200 yards. And you were talking about a volley of arrows. So they're not like, you know, precision, like Legolas marksmen, right? They're, they're, they're throwing yeah. out a bunch of arrows at a time. Um, and most of that artillery is coming from the horse. When we talk about cavalry, you know, the horse has got a harness. It's got a really small saddle cloth. I don't think they have any like bits or um, any sort of like stirrups, right? So there's a lot, there's not much control. The, the cavalry does not have any armor on the horse. We're talking about maybe yep. 130 arrows, maybe an iron club, a couple of javelins that they're carrying. And then they're wearing, you know, cloth, like cloth trousers, a tunic and a cloak and a felt cap. This cavalry is not, you know, like a lant with lances and, you know, charging in, you know, onto the flank, right? These right. This cavalry is hanging back. They're shooting arrows. They're probably protecting, you know, Darius's, you know, area on the battlefield. So, or not Darius, Darius wasn't there, but, you know, protecting the the, the leader. You know, when we're talking, like, you're going to be some people that say, well, the cavalry left. And it's like, well, that doesn't really make sense because the cavalry wouldn't really do much in Athens. So I think the cavalry was there. They just were very ineffective here. Yeah, well, and that's important to understand. You're absolutely right when you're talking about the the equipment that the horse would have had. Stirrups would not have been invented mm-hmm. for many hundreds of years after this, and and so that's the 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 major difference between light cavalry, which is useful for scouting and reconnaissance, uh, reconnaissance and harassing your enemy's yep. flanks. That's light cavalry versus the heavy cavalry that we're going to see in the times of the Middle Ages. Yep. That's the stirrup, the creation of the stirrup, the ability to anchor yourself into your horse and and harness that horse's weight along the side of your javelin. That's what makes it a heavy horse. Right. Uh, the light cavalry, not the most useful in this type of a battle or this type of a scenario, but also could do great amounts of damage if they're allowed to get around. If they're right. allowed to get around your rear, that's where the yeah. harassment's going to really happen. Yep. And that's what the that's what the Greeks definitely have to be cognizant of. Yep. So let's talk the the Persian foot now. So 
leather shoes, no real indication of body armor in use based on the sources that we have, and then a soft cap. And then all they're carrying for kit is wicker shields and short swords. So we're talking about, you know, 25,000 dudes, but their equipment is a lot less effective compared to the hoplites. Well, and that's an important thing. When you're looking at it, you had different types of uh, governments, uh, government ideas. The Athenians, the Greeks, one of their standard ideas is that all of our soldiers have to be kitted out relatively the same. And the government's going to going to invest in outfitting these soldiers with their kit. And the the other point point is that the Athenians are like the Athenian army is Athenian, right? Like all those people that are in the the formation, the hoplite formation, those are all Athenians, right? So um, I think there's probably more emphasis on, you know, protecting uh, and kidding out your your sons compared to the Persian army, which most of that army, like there's a, a you know a contingent of actual Persians that are in that army, but most of them are um, conscript army and soldiers from you know Egypt and Mesopotamia and Turkey, yeah, all over Asia, all Minor, over yeah. Persia, yeah, yeah. So and and that's another thing. These bows, like you said, they're not they're not long bows because the Persians are going to be required to purchase their own bows. Mm-hmm. Which so that that's another thing entirely. But now let's talk about this uh, wicker shield versus wooden wooden and iron or bronze plated shields. How do how does this battle happen? Uh, yeah. So you know the effectiveness, light versus heavy. Yeah. So we'll talk about, so in the Greek center, like we said earlier, it's very thin, right? And so that thin, like as the two armies come together and they get into contact, that Greek center folds and bends pretty quickly, right? Like we're talking about, you know, 20 some thousand Persians pushing in against that Greek center. And so that Greek center starts to fall back. Um, I, you know, the Greeks did a lot of damage to the Persians in that area, but just the amount of people in that center area pushed the Greeks back in the center only. Well, and think point. of it. Yeah. Think of it this way, though, Brendan. Think of it as you being a Persian general, and you every single day you see that they're setting up this way. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? You see, wow, they're weak in the center. Yep. They're strong on their. Someone take advantage of that. Yeah, you're going right. to take advantage of it. It it plays perfectly into that idea that we mass our forces in the center and mm-hmm. we bust through. That would be devastating. Yeah. Especially with how the Persians saw the line, right, where the position of honor and where you put the strongest people is in the center. Whereas on the Greeks, uh, you know, the position on the right of the line was the position of honor where you put the strong army. So um, a little bit different. And this works in the Greeks' advantage. So, yeah, Persians, Persians, strong center. A lot of people uh, pushes that Greek center back. But on the flanks, on those thick flanks, they push the Persian flanks back pretty quickly as well. So you have this like this interesting thing where the where the Persians are moving left quickly and the Greeks on the on the flanks are moving right quickly. And those Persians that are on the flanks, like we talked about, those are most likely not actual Persians or conscripts from other countries. And they they break pretty quickly. Those Persian flanks get moved back. They break and it allows those Greek flanks, the, the edges of the Greek line to envelop the middle of that Persian line. And so basically all those Persians in the middle are now stuck between a rock and a Greek place. And like the, you have hoplites on, you have hoplites on all sides. The Persians just route from there. Uh, the Persians yeah. on the, the ones in the flanks leave the battle really quickly. And then the ones in the middle probably can't leave because they're surrounded by, they're surrounded by Greek spears and short swords. 
Yeah, and it's important to realize that when we're talking about these old school battles, very few casualties would have been abstain would have been obtained mm-hmm. during the initial engagement. The vast majority of these casualties, when you're talking about, uh, you look at the numbers, and and granted, these are going to be skewed numbers. They're going to talk about a million Persians killed, kind of that nonsense. But what really truly looks at is is you're going to see a couple hundred Greeks. And you're going to see thousands of Persians and yep. the battle. Why in the world did the winner suffer so few casualties when the loser suffered so many? And it's because of that route. Yep, As the, the soldiers are running, the pursuit is what causes those casualties. So is it an immediate route or how long pretty, do you think pretty, this took? I think like this, this, I think the battle, we don't know how long the battle took. I, you know, Herodotus says it takes all day, but at, at some point, you know, the, the Greek fl- or the Persian flanks are gone. And then the center tries to, tries to retreat as quickly as possible. And then the Greeks pursue. We don't know how long that pursuit takes, but so basically the Persians move into that great marsh area to get back to their triremes, get back on the ships and get away from the Greeks. I think, I think when you're talking, like, let's put it into perspective here. Mm-hmm. When you're, when you're fighting a battle and you're up one-to-one against a, a person in front of you, I, you think of it very closely too. If you ever did some like MMA fighting, you mm-hmm. did some wrestling and the two minutes that you were in the ring wrestling, is exhausting. Yeah. It's two minutes. Yeah. So one can only imagine, and the way that most of these, when, when battles took all day, when they truly took all day, the way it happened was these units, they would crash into each other. They would fight until they were exhausted and then they would back off on mm-hmm. each other and they would get a, they'd take sure. an hour re resuming their, you know, getting the their next rank like, up, right. Or, you know, yeah. sweat, swap ranks and do all yeah. that. Yeah. Humans can only do so much. And, you yeah. know, we might not be in great shape nowadays, but, but there is no way that that these guys could have kept that sort of right. exhaustive activity right for this I mean, amount yeah. of time look like yeah like you just said Baron, like a boxing round or a round of mma like yeah those are pretty short pieces of very violent activity and that's what being in that center would have been like with super violent activity for a short time we don't know how long how long it took but greeks pursue through the marsh to the ships and then Herodotus tells a silly story of a Greek general named Synegerius, I think, who, refusing to let the Persian trireme push off, grabbed the ship to pull it back to shore. Um, <laughs> his prize was a Persian sword severing his arm and then killing him in the Bay of Marathon. So <laughs> kind of a silly story. I don't know why Herodotus thought to put that in there, maybe to, you know, make put this guy up as like, you know, a great Greek hero. But basically, after all that, we have a resounding Greek victory. Uh, the Greeks totally thrashed the Persians here. Battle losses, 6,400 Persians killed uh, on the beach with an un- unknown amount lost to the swamp. So we're at, like multiple thousands of Persians lost here. And then like you said, Bjorn, there was only 192 Athenians and 11 Plataeans that were killed in the fight, right? So they they go up with 10,000 soldiers and now they lose 192, 200, 200 soldiers. Like that, that's a, that's that's a good trade-off. Fabulous victory. Yeah. The Persians that were able to get away, get on the ships, push off, and then they sail around the uh, Cape of Sunion uh, to attack Athens directly. So two Athenian tribes remained at Marathon while the rest of the army packed up and moved out back to Athens. And they were able to march the 17 miles quickly enough to actually put up a you know a defense of Athens and not allow the Persians to land. So the Persians don't so, do anything at, at Athens, and then they they retreat back to back to Asia Minor. So so what you're saying is that these dudes they fought all day, you know they fought all, all day. day. However, whatever that means, there was obviously a considerable amount of mopping up that they did as they were yep. pursuing. And you're talking about uh, imagine obviously these Persians have a lot lighter equipment, so when they're running for their lives, the Greeks are not going to be able to pursue them right. at that same top speed. But 
they're running after each other, slaughtering 6,400 soldiers. And then they said, okay, guys, it's time for us to pack up. We got to go back home as quick as possible. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a good day's work. Let's be real. That's a good yeah. day's work. So that's that's a battle. Uh, the, so, Greeks, the Greeks thrashed. But I think, you know, there's some like really interesting historical significance things here, especially to our friends that do a lot of running. Oh, yeah. You know, apparently the that marathon. There you go. What's what's the you're talking about a marathon. What's the, the significance and what's the connection between the Battle of Marathon and a a marathon? What is it like 26 point? So I think the 26.2 miles thing is something to do with like uh, old English run that happened. But I think the initial uh, I, I don't know how long the actual run from from Athens to Sparta was. So that's where like the long part of the run comes from, right? Was that messenger run back to Sparta. And then, you know, all the dramatics around that where uh, this guy runs back to back to the Athenian army and then collapses and dies. But so there's the super long run to Sparta and then the army's march back to Athens in a really quick time. Kind of like those two things kind of um, come together into what, you know, the Nike marathon, right? So the Greek victory marathon, uh, you know, Nike means victory in, in Greek. So, um, yeah, all those things kind of come together to like form the lore of the marathon run that, you know, all of our crazy friends do today. Yeah, <laughs> not me, <laughs> not me. Not me. <laughs> so, yeah, so there you go. That's, I mean, what a great battle for us to start talking about, you know, let's go way back. Let's yeah. talk about one of the, the first wit- recorded ones. One of the history. first. Yeah, absolutely. Everything else prior to that. I mean, we're just, you know, you're just guessing. By guess, right. by golly, with the older right. stuff. Uh, so moving on, what what are we looking at here for the future? Yeah. So I think, you know, this is going to be one of the, like, this is obviously the first one we're going to talk about with Greek versus Persia. But there is a lot of conflict between Greece and Persia. And so we're going to be coming back, I think, to this time period and talking about, you know, the the different fights, but, you know, land and the Navy. Ba- yeah. The Battle of Thermopylae, for yep. example. Pel- the 300 the Peloponnesian campaign. Um, all that. And, you know, even like all the fights between the Greeks. So I think there's gonna be a lot of interesting things for us to talk about here, but I think, you know, next time we're going to move up, you know, like 2000 years and we're going to talk about the American civil war, specifically the battle of Antietam, uh, you know, the, the bloodiest moment in the civil war. So that's um, one of my favorite, one of my favorite battles of the civil war to talk about, to learn about, you know, the, uh, it still holds the record for the most Americans killed in a single day. You know, you talk about Gettysburg and they say that's the largest battle we've ever been in, uh, casualty wise, but Antietam was one day, Gettysburg was three. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that one. That's yeah. going to be a great conversation. So everyone, uh, thank you so much for tuning that dial and listening to our first two episodes. Uh, be sure to subscribe and follow so you don't miss the next series about Antietam. And then we got a whole bunch more coming down the pike here. So we'll talk to you soon. MMG out. MMG out.